Section 8. A Godly Person is an Evangelical Weeper. David sometimes sang with his harp, and sometimes he wept. I water my couch with my tears. Psalm 6.6. Christ calls his spouse his dove. Song of Solomon 2.14. The dove is a weeping creature. Grace dissolves and melts the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. The sorrow of the heart runs out at the eye. The rabbis report that the same night on which Israel departed from Egypt toward Canaan, all the idols of Egypt were broken down by lightning and earthquake. So, at that very time when people go forth from their natural condition toward heaven, all the idols of sin in the heart must be broken down by repentance. A melting heart is the main branch of the covenant of grace and the product of the Spirit. I will pour upon the house of David the Spirit of grace, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Zechariah 12.10 Question. But why is a godly person a weeper? Is not sin pardoned? which is the basis of joy? Has he not had a transforming work upon his heart? Why, then, does he weep? Answer. A godly person has many reasons to weep. 1. He weeps for indwelling sin, the law in his members, Romans 7.23, the offense and the first risings of sin. His nature is a poisoned fountain. A saved person grieves that he carries about him that which is enmity to God. His heart is like a wide sea in which there are innumerable creeping things. Psalm 104.25 Vain, sinful thoughts. A child of God laments hidden wickedness. He has more evil in him than he knows of. There are those wanderings in his heart that he cannot trace, an unknown world of sin. Who can understand his errors? Psalm 19.12 2. A godly person weeps for sin that clings. If he could get rid of sin, there would be some comfort, but he cannot shake off this viper. Acts 28.5 Sin clings to him like leprosy to the wall. Leviticus 14.39 Although a child of God forsakes his sin, yet sin will not forsake him. Concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. Daniel 7.12 So, although the dominion of sin is taken away, yet its life is prolonged for a season, and while sin lives, it causes harm. The Persians were daily enemies to the Romans and would invade their frontiers. In the same way, sin wars against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 There is no end of this battle until death. Will not this cause tears? 3. A child of God weeps that he is sometimes overcome 
by the prevalence of corruption. The evil which I would not, that I do. Romans 7:19. Paul was like a man carried downstream by the force of the water. How often a saint is overpowered by pride and passion. When David had sinned, he soaked his soul in the salty tears of repentance. A saved person must necessarily be grieved to think that he, after he has felt the sting of sin, would be so foolish as to put this fire in his heart again. Proverbs 6, 27 1. A godly heart grieves that he is not more holy. It troubles him that he falls so short of the rule and standard that God has set. He says, I should love the Lord with all my heart. But how defective my love is! How far short I come of what I should be, no, of what I could have been! What can I see in my life but either blanks or blots? 2. A godly person sometimes weeps out of the sense of God's love. Gold is the finest and most solid of all the metals yet it is the soonest melted in the fire. Gracious hearts, which are golden hearts, are the soonest melted into tears by the fire of God's love. I once knew a holy man who was walking in his garden and shedding plenty of tears when a friend unexpectedly visited and asked him why he wept. He broke forth into this moving response. Oh, the love of Christ! the love of Christ. Thus, we have seen the cloud melted into water by the sunbeams. 3. A godly person weeps because the sins he commits are in some sense worse than the sins of other people. The sin of a justified person is very abhorrent. 1. The sin of a justified person is very abhorrent because he acts contrary to his own principles. He sins not only against the rule, but also against his principles, and against his knowledge, vows, prayers, hopes, and experiences. He knows how dear sin will cost him, yet he adventures upon the forbidden fruit. 2. The sin of a justified person is abhorrent, because it is a sin of unkindness. 1 Kings 11.9 Peter's denying of Christ was a sin against love. Christ had enlisted him among the apostles. He had taken him up into the Mount of Transfiguration and had shown him the glory of heaven in a vision. Yet after all this remarkable mercy, it was simple ingratitude that he would deny Christ. This made him go out and weep bitterly. Matthew 26, 75. He baptized himself, as it were, in his own tears. The sins of the godly go nearest to God's heart. The sins of others anger God, but the sins of the godly grieve him. The sins of the wicked pierce Christ's side but the sins of the godly wound his heart. The unkindness of a spouse goes nearest to the heart of her husband. 3. 
The sin of a justified person is abhorrent because it reflects more dishonor upon God. By this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 2 Samuel 12:14. The sins of God's people put dark blots on the face of the Christian religion. Thus, we see what reasons there are why a child of God would weep, even after conversion. This sorrow of a godly person for sin is not a despairing sorrow. He does not mourn without hope. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Psalm 65, 3. Iniquities prevail against me. That is the holy soul weeping. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. That is faith triumphing. Divine sorrow is excellent. There is as much difference between the sorrow of a godly person and the sorrow of a wicked person as between clear, clean spring water and slaty, brackish seawater. A godly person's sorrow has these three qualifications. 1. It is internal. It is a sorrow of soul. Hypocrites disfigure their faces. Matthew 6, 16. Godly sorrow goes deep. It is a pricking in their heart. Acts 2, 37. True sorrow is a spiritual martyrdom. That is why it is called affliction of the soul. Leviticus 23, 29. 2. Godly sorrow is sincere. It is more for the evil that is in sin than the harm that results from the sin. It is more for the spot than for the sting. Hypocrites weep for sin only as it brings affliction. I have read of a fountain that never sends forth streams except right before a famine. Hypocrites never send forth the streams of their tears except when God's judgments are approaching. 3. Godly sorrow is influential. It makes the heart better. By the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Ecclesiastes 7.3 Divine tears not only wet, but they also wash. They purge out the love of sin. Application 1. How far from being godly are those who hardly ever shed a tear for sin? If they lose a close relative, they weep. But although they are in danger of losing God and their souls, they do not weep. How few know what it is to be in agony for sin or what a broken heart means. Their eyes are not like the fish pools in Heshbon, full of water. Song of Solomon 7.4, but rather are like the mountains of Gilboa, which had no dew upon them. 2 Samuel 1.21 It was a greater plague for Pharaoh to have his heart turned into stone than to have his rivers turned into blood. Others, if they do sometimes shed a tear, are still never any better. They continue in wickedness, 
and do not drown their sins in their tears. Application 2. Let us labor for the divine characteristic of being weepers. This is a repentance not to be repented of. 2 Corinthians 7.10 It is reported of John Bradford, 1510-1555, the martyr, that he was of such a melting spirit that he seldom sat down to his meal without some tears trickling down his cheeks. There are two labors to wash away sin, blood and tears. The blood of Christ washes away the guilt of sin, and the tears wash away the filth. Repenting tears are precious. God puts them in His bottle. Psalm 56, 8 They are beautifying. A tear in the eye adorns more than a ring on the finger. Oil makes the face shine. Psalm 104, 15 And tears make the heart shine. Tears are comforting. A sinner's mirth turns to melancholy. A saint's mourning turns to music. Repentance may be compared to myrrh, which is bitter to the taste but is comforting to the spirits. Repentance may be bitter to the fleshy part, but it is most refreshing to the spiritual. Wax that melts is suitable to use for a seal. A melting soul is suitable to take the stamp of all heavenly blessings. Let us give Christ the water of our tears, and He will give us the wine of His blood. Section 9 A Godly Person Loves the Scriptures Oh, how I love thy law! Psalm 119.97 A godly person loves the written word. John Chrysostom compared the Bible to a garden set with shrubs and flowers. A godly person delights to walk in this garden and sweetly comfort and encourage himself. He loves every branch and part of the word. He loves the counseling part of the word. It is a directory and rule of life. The Word is the firm statue that points us to our duty. It contains in it things to be believed and practiced. A godly person loves the wisdom of the Word. He loves the threatening part of the Word. The Scripture is like the Garden of Eden. Just as it has a tree of life in it, so it has a flaming sword at its gates. This is the threatening of the Word. It flashes fire in the face of every person who goes on stubbornly and willfully in wickedness. God shall wound the head of his enemies, and the hairy scalp of such an one as goeth on still in his trespasses. Psalm 68.21 The word gives no indulgence to evil. It will not let a person waver between God and sin. The true mother would not let the child be divided. 1 Kings 3.26 And God will not have the heart divided. The word thunders out threatenings against the very appearance of evil. It is like that flying roll full of curses. Zechariah 5.1 A godly person loves the threatening of the word. He knows there is love in every threat. 
God does not want us to perish. Therefore, He mercifully threatens us so that He may scare us from sin. God's threats are like the buoy that reveals the rocks in the sea and threatens death to those who come near. The threat is a bridle to stop us, so that we may not run full speed to hell. There is mercy in every threat. He loves the comforting part of the word, the promises. He goes feeding on these as Samson went on his way, eating the honeycomb. Judges 14, 8-9 The promises are all marrow and sweetness. They are our healing potion when we are fainting. They are the channels of the water of life. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Psalm 94.19 The promises were David's harp to drive away sad thoughts. They were the springs that provided him with the water of divine consolation. A godly person shows his love to the written word in the following ways. By diligently reading it. The noble Bereans search the scriptures daily. Acts 17.11 Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. Acts 18.24 The word is our Magna Carta for heaven. We should read this charter every day. The word shows what is truth and what is error. It is the field in which the pearl of great price is hidden. How we should dig for this pearl. A godly person's heart is the library to hold the word of God. It dwells in him richly. Colossians 3:16. It is reported of Philip Melanchthon that when he was young, he always carried the Bible with him and read it hungrily. The word has a double work, to teach us and to judge us. Those who will not be taught by the Word will be judged by the Word. Oh, let us make the Scriptures familiar to us. What if it would be now, as in the times of Diocletian, who commanded by proclamation that the Bible should be burned? What if it would be now, as in Queen Mary's days, when it meant death to possess a Bible in English? By diligent familiarity with Scripture, we may carry a Bible in our heads, by frequently meditating on it. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97 A pious soul meditates on the truth and holiness of the Word. He does not merely have a few fleeting thoughts, but he saturates his mind in the Bible. By meditation, he sips from the sweet flower and affixes holy truths in his mind. By delighting in it, it is his recreation. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Never did a man take such delight in a meal that he loved as the prophet did in the word. Indeed, how can a saint choose not to take great satisfaction in the Word, for all that is worth anything to him is contained in it? Does not a son take pleasure in reading his father's will and testament 
in which he has left his estate to him? By hiding it. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. Psalm 119.11 He hides God's word in his heart as one hides a treasure, so it will not be stolen. The word is the jewel, and the heart is the cabinet where it must be locked up. Many people hide the word in their memory, but not in their heart. Why would David hide the word in his heart? That I might not sin against thee. As someone would carry a remedy with him when he goes near an infected place, so a godly person carries the word in his heart as a spiritual antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. So many have been poisoned with error and others with moral vice because they have not hidden the word as a holy antidote in their hearts. By defending it, a wise person will not let his land be taken from him, but will defend his title. David looked upon the word as his land of inheritance. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever. Psalm 119, Do you think he would let his inheritance be torn out of his hands? A godly person will not only dispute for the word, but will also die for it. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Revelation 6, 9 By preferring it above things most precious. 1. Above food. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23.12 2. Above riches. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Psalm 119.72 3. Above worldly honor. The story of King Edward VI is memorable. On the day of his coronation, when three swords were presented to him, signifying to him that he was monarch of three kingdoms, the king said, There is still one sword missing. On being asked what that was, he answered, The Holy Bible, which is the sword of the Spirit, and is to be preferred before these ensigns of royalty. By talking about it. My tongue shall speak of thy word. Psalm 119.172 As a covetous person talks about his expensive purchase, so a godly person speaks about the word. What a treasure it is! How full of beauty and grace! Those whose mouths the devil has gagged, who never speak of God's word, indicate that they have never reaped any good from it. By conforming to it. The word is his sundial by which he sets his life, the balance in which he weighs his actions. He copies out the word in his daily walk. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7 Paul kept the doctrine of faith and lived the life of faith. Question. Why does a godly person love the word? Answer 1. Because of the excellency of the word. 1. 
The written word is our pillar of fire to guide us. It shows us what rocks we are to avoid. It is the map by which we sail to the new Jerusalem. 2. The word is a spiritual lens through which we may see our own hearts. The lens of nature that the heathen had revealed spots in their lives, but this lens reveals spots in the thoughts. That lens revealed the spots of their unrighteousness, but this reveals the spots of our righteousness. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Romans 7, 9. When the word came as a lens, all my thoughts of self-righteousness died. 3. The word of God is a sovereign comfort in distress. While we follow this cloud, the rock follows us. This is my comfort in my affliction. For thy word hath quickened me. Psalm 119.50 Christ is the fountain of living water, and the word is the golden pipe through which it runs. What can revive at the hour of death except the word of life? Philippians 2.16 Answer 2 a godly person loves the Word because of the power and effect it has had upon him. This day star has risen in his heart, 2 Peter 1.19, and has ushered in the Son of Righteousness, Malachi 4.2. Answer 3. A godly person loves the Word preached, which is a commentary upon the Word written. The scriptures are the sovereign oils and balsams. The preaching of the word is pouring them out. The scriptures are the precious spices. The preaching of the word is beating these spices, which causes a wonderful fragrance and delight. The word preached is the rod of God's strength. Psalm 110.2 And the breath of his lips. Isaiah 11.4 what was once said of the city of Thebes, that it was built by the sound of Amphius's harp, is much more true of soul conversion. It is built by the sound of the gospel harp. Therefore, the preaching of the word is called the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16 By this, Christ is said to now speak to us from heaven. Hebrews 12, 25. This ministry of the Word is to be preferred before the ministry of angels. A godly person loves the Word preached, partly from the good he has found by it. He has felt the dew fall with this manna, and partly because of God's having established this means. The Lord has appointed this ordinance to save him. The king's image makes the coin valid and serviceable. The stamp of divine authority upon the word preached makes it an instrument conducive to people's salvation. Application Let us test whether we are godly by asking ourselves if we love the word. 1. Do we love the written word? What sums of money the martyrs gave for a few pages of the Bible? Do we make the word our dear friend? As Moses often had the rod of God in his hand, 
so we should have the book of God in our hands. When we need direction, do we consult the sacred volume? When we find corruptions strong, do we make use of this sword of the Spirit to cut them down? When we are downhearted, do we go to this bottle of the water of life for comfort? If so, then we love the Word. But sadly, how can they who are seldom occupied with the Scriptures say they love them? Their eyes begin to be sore when they look at a Bible. The two testaments are hung up like rusty armor that is seldom or never made use of. The Lord wrote the law with his own finger, but although God took effort to write, people will not take effort to read. They would rather look at a deck of cards than at a Bible. 1. Do we love the Word rightly preached? Do we value it in our judgments? Do we receive it into our hearts? Do we fear the loss of the word preached more than the loss of peace and business? Is it the removal of the ark that troubles us? Do we attend the preaching of the word with reverential devotion? When the judge is giving his instructions and charge on the bench, everyone pays attention. When the word is preached, the great God is giving us his instructions and commands. Do we listen to it as to a matter of life and death? This is a good sign that we love the Word. 2. Do we love the sanctity of the Word? The Word is preached to beat down sin and advance holiness. Do we love it for its piety and purity? Many people love the Word preached only for its eloquence and concepts. They come to a sermon as to a music lecture. Ezekiel 33, 31-32, or as to a garden to pick flowers, but not to have their lusts subdued or their hearts made better. They are like a foolish woman who applies makeup to her face but neglects her health. 3. Do we love the convictions of the Word? Do we love the Word when it comes home to our conscience? and shoots its arrows of reproof at our sins? It is the minister's duty sometimes to reprove. He who can speak smooth words in the pulpit, but does not know how to reprove, is like a sword with a fine handle, but without an edge. Rebuke them sharply. Titus 1.13 Dip the nail in oil and reprove in love, but strike the nail home. Christian, when the word touches on your sin and says, Thou art the man, 2 Samuel 12, 7, do you love the reproof? Can you thank God that the sword of the Spirit has divided between you and your lusts? This is indeed a sign of grace and shows that you indeed love the word. A corrupt heart loves the comforts of the word, but not the reproofs. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate. Amos 5.10 They are like venomous creatures that at the least touch spit poison. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Acts 7.54 
When Stephen reproved them, they were mad and could not tolerate it. Question. How will we know that we love the reproofs of the word? Answer 1. When we desire to sit under a heart-searching ministry. Who wants medicine that does not work? A godly person does not choose to sit under a ministry that will not work upon his conscience. Answer 2. When we pray that the word may meet with our sins. If there is any traitorous lust in our heart, we want it to be found out and executed. We do not want sin concealed, but overcome. We can open our chest to the bullet of the word and say, Lord, smite this sin. Answer 3. When we are thankful for a reproof. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness, and let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head. Psalm 141, 5. David was glad of a reproof. Suppose a man were in the mouth of a lion, and another person would shoot the lion and save the man. Would he not be thankful? In the same way, when we are in the mouth of sin, as of a lion, and the minister by a reproof shoots this sin to death, should we not be thankful? A gracious soul rejoices when the sharp lance of the word has pierced his abscess. He wears a reproof like a jewel, as an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold. So is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. Proverbs 25, 12. To conclude, it is convincing preaching that must do the soul good. A sharp reproof prepares for comfort, just as a chilling frost prepares for the sweet flowers of spring. Section 10. A godly person has the Spirit of God residing in him. The Holy Spirit, which dwelleth in us, 2 Timothy 1.14, see also Galatians 4.6. The theologians raise the question of whether or not a person receives the Holy Spirit himself. Montanus taught that the godly so have God's Spirit in them that they partake of his essence and have become one person with him. However, this amounts to no less than blasphemy, for it would then follow that every saint was to be worshipped. I believe that the Spirit is in the godly, in whom he flows in measure. They have his presence and receive his sacred influences. When the sun comes into a room, it is not the body of the sun that is there, but the beams that radiate from it. Indeed, some theologians have thought that the godly have more than the inflow of the Spirit, though I cannot express how, and it is better for some angelic pen to describe than mine. The Spirit of God reveals Himself in a gracious soul in two ways by his stirrings, and by his virtues. By his stirrings. These are some of that sweet perfume that the Spirit breathes upon the heart, by which it is raised into a kind of angelic frame. Question 1. 
How may we distinguish the stirrings of the Spirit from a delusion? Answer. The motions of the Spirit are always consonant with the Word. The Word is the chariot in which the Spirit of God rides. Whichever way the tide of the Word runs, that is the way the wind of the Spirit blows. Question 2. How may the stirrings of the Spirit in the godly be distinguished from the impulses of a natural conscience? Answer 1. A natural conscience may sometimes stir to the same thing that the Spirit does, but not from the same principle. Natural conscience is a spur to duty, but it drives a person to do his duties for fear of hell, just as the galley slave pulls at the oar for fear of being beaten. However, the Spirit moves a child of God from a more noble principle. The Spirit inspires him to serve God out of choice and to consider duty his privilege. Answer 2. The impulses of a natural conscience drive people only to easier duties of religion, in which the heart is less exercised, such as routine and careless reading or praying. However, the motions of the Spirit in the godly go further causing them to do the most troublesome duties, such as self-reflection and self-humbling, and even perilous duties, such as confessing Christ's name in times of danger. Divine motions in the heart are like new wine that seeks vent. When God's Spirit possesses a person, He carries him full sail through all difficulties. By His Virtues there are many virtues of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit has a teaching virtue. The Spirit teaches convincingly. John 16, 8. He so teaches as to persuade and convince. God's Spirit has a sanctifying virtue. The heart is naturally polluted. But when the Spirit enters in, He works sin out and grace in. The Spirit of God was represented by the dove, an emblem of purity. The Spirit makes the heart a temple of purity and a paradise for pleasantness. The Holy Oil of Consecration, Exodus 30.25, was nothing else but a prefiguring of the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies a person's thoughts, causing the mind to produce holy meditations. He sanctifies his will, turning it to good so that now it will be as delightful to serve God as before it was to sin against him. Sweet powders perfume the linen, and God's Spirit in a person perfumes him with holiness and makes his heart a map of heaven. God's Spirit has a life-giving virtue. The Spirit giveth life. 2 Corinthians 3.6 Just as the air blowing through an organ makes its sound, so the breathing of the Spirit causes life and motion. When the prophet Elijah stretched himself upon the dead child, the child revived. 1 Kings 17.22 And God's Spirit stretching himself upon the soul imparts life into it. As our life is from the Spirit's operations, 
so is our vitality. The Spirit lifted me up. Ezekiel 3.14 When the heart is bowed down and is weary for duty, the Spirit of God lifts it up. He puts a sharp edge upon the affections. He makes love fervent and hope lively. The Spirit removes the weights of the soul and gives it wings. For ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Amenemdib. Song of Solomon 6.12 The wheels of the soul were pulled off before, and it drove on heavily. See Exodus 14.25 But when the Spirit of the Almighty possesses a person, then he runs swiftly in the ways of God, and his soul is like the chariots of Amenadib. God's Spirit has a governmental virtue. He rules and governs. God's Spirit sits paramount in the soul. He provides resistance and opposition to the violence of corruption and sin. He will not allow a person to be vain and degenerate like others. The Spirit of God will not be put out of office. He exercises His authority over the heart, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 The Spirit has a softening virtue. Therefore, He is compared to fire that softens the wax. The Spirit turns flint into flesh. I will give you an heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26 How will this be brought about? I will put my Spirit within you. Ezekiel 36, 27 While the heart is hard, it lies like a log, and is not worked upon either by judgments or by mercies. But when God's Spirit comes in, He makes a person's heart as tender as His eye, and now it yields to divine impressions. The Spirit of God has a sustaining virtue. He imparts strength and assistance for work. He is a spirit of power. 2 Timothy 1.7 God's Spirit carries a person above himself, strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 The Spirit confirms faith and inspires courage. He lifts one end of the cross and makes it lighter to bear. The Spirit gives not only a sufficiency of strength, but also an overabundance. Question. How will we know whether we are acting in the strength of God's Spirit or in the strength of our own abilities? Answer 1. When we humbly cast ourselves upon God for assistance, just as David cast himself upon God for help when he went against Goliath, I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel 17:45 Answer 2 When our duties are divinely determined we do them with pure intents Answer 3 When we find God going along with us we give him the glory for everything This clearly shows that the duty was carried on by the strength of God's spirit more than by any innate abilities of our own 
God's Spirit has a comforting virtue. Downheartedness may arise in a gracious heart. See Psalm 43.5. Just as the heaven is bright and clear, yet may still have clouds. This sadness is usually caused through the malice of Satan, who, if he cannot destroy us, will disturb us. However, God's Spirit within us sweetly cheers and revives. He is called the Comforter, John 14:16. These comforts are real and unfailing. That is why it is called the Seal of the Spirit, Ephesians 1:13. When a deed is sealed, it is firm and unquestionable. When a Christian has the seal of the Spirit, his comforts are confirmed. Every godly person has these revivings of the Spirit in some degree. He has the seeds and beginnings of joy, even if the flower is not fully ripe and blown. Question. How does the Spirit give comfort? Answer 1. By showing us that we are in a state of grace. A Christian cannot always see his riches. The work of grace may be written in the heart, like shorthand that a Christian cannot read. The Spirit gives him a key to open these dark characters and spell out his adoption, whereupon he has joy and peace. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. 1 Corinthians 2 12. Answer 2. The Spirit comforts by giving us some delightful understanding of God's love. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 5. God's love is a box of precious ointment, and only the Spirit can break this box open and fill us with its sweet perfume. Answer 3. The Spirit comforts by carrying us to the blood of Christ. Just as when we take water to a person who is weary and ready to faint, and he is refreshed, so when we are fainting under the burden of sin, the Spirit carries us to the fountain of Christ's blood. In that day there shall be a fountain open. Zechariah 13.1 The Spirit enables us to drink the waters of justification that run out of Christ's sides. The Spirit applies whatever Christ has purchased. He shows us that our sins are done away in Christ, and although we are defiled in ourselves, we are undefiled in our head. Answer 4. The Spirit comforts by enabling one's conscience to comfort. The child must be taught before it can speak. The Spirit opens the mouth of conscience and helps it to speak and to witness to a person that his standing is good, whereupon he begins to receive comfort. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Romans 9.1 Conscience draws up a certificate for a person and then the Holy Spirit comes and signs the certificate. Answer 5. The Spirit conveys the oil of joy 
through two golden channels, ordinances and promises. The ordinances. As Christ in prayer had his countenance changed and there was a glorious luster upon his face, Luke 9.29, so often in the use of holy ordinances, the godly have such delights of joy and transfigurations of soul that they have been carried above the world and have despised all things below. The promises. The promises are comforting for their certainty. Romans 4.16 God in the promises has put his truth as a pledge. The promises are also comforting for their suitableness, being measured for every Christian's condition. The promises are like an herb garden. There is no disease which some herb may not be found there to cure it. The promises of themselves cannot comfort, though, for only the Spirit enables us to sip from these honeycombs. The promises are like a distillation vessel full of herbs, but this vessel will not allow the liquid to drop unless the fire is put under the vessel. In the same way, when the Spirit of God, who is compared to fire, is put to the distillation vessel of the promises, then they drip consolation into the soul. Thus, we see how the Spirit is in the godly by his virtues. Objection. But is being filled with the Spirit the sign of a godly person? Are not the wicked said to partake of the Holy Spirit? Hebrews 6.4 Answer. Wicked people may partake of the Spirit's working, but not of his indwelling. They may have God's Spirit move upon them, but the godly have him enter into them. Ezekiel 3.24 Objection. But the unsaved taste of the heavenly gift. Hebrews 6, 4. Answer. It is with them as it is with cooks who may taste a crumb of the food they are preparing. But they are not nourished by it. Tasting there is opposed to eating. The godly have not only a drop or taste of the Spirit, but he is in them like a river of living water. John 7.38 Application 1. It labels those as ungodly who have none of God's Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8.9 And if he is none of Christ's, then whose is he? To what regiment does he belong? It is the misery of a sinner that he has none of God's Spirit. I think it is very offensive to hear people who never had God's Spirit say, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51.11 Will those who are drunkards and swearers say they have God's Spirit in them? Do those who are mean and corrupt have God's Spirit? It would be blasphemy to say that these people have the Spirit. Will the Blessed Spirit leave his celestial palace to come and live in a prison? A sinner's heart is a jail, both for darkness and loathsomeness. And will God's free spirit be confined to a prison? A sinner's heart is the emblem of hell. 
What would God's Spirit do there? Wicked hearts are not a temple, but a pigsty, where the unclean spirit makes his abode, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2. We would not want to live in a house haunted by evil spirits, yet a sinner's heart is haunted. After the sop, Satan entered into him. John 13:27. Satan attacks the godly, but enters into the wicked. When the demons went into the herd of swine, they ran violently down a steep place into the sea. Matthew 8, 32. Why is it that people run so eagerly to commit sin, other than because the devil has entered into these swine? Secondly, this cuts off from godliness those who not only lack the Spirit, but also mock him, like those Jews who said, These men are full of new wine. Acts 2.13 The apostles were indeed full of the wine of the Spirit. How God's Spirit is scoffed at by the sons of Belial. They say that these are men of the Spirit. What wretches they are who make those tongues instruments of blasphemy that should be organs of God's praise. Have you no one to cast your insults at but the Spirit? Mocking the Holy Spirit comes very near to despising Him. How can people be sanctified except by the Spirit? Therefore, to reproach Him is to make merry with their own damnation. Application 2. As you desire to be listed among the godly, labor for the indwelling of the Spirit. Pray with Melanchthon, Lord, inflame my soul with your Holy Spirit, and say with the spouse, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south. Blow upon my garden. Song of Solomon 4.16 As a sailor would desire a wind to carry him out to sea, so desire the prosperous gales of the Spirit, and the promise may add wings to prayer. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Luke 11.13 God's Spirit is a rich jewel. Go to God for Him. Lord, give me your Spirit. Where is the jewel you promised me? When will my soul be as Gideon's fleece? wet with the dew of heaven. Consider how necessary the Spirit is. Without Him, we can do nothing acceptable to God. We cannot pray without Him. He is a Spirit of supplications. Zechariah 12.10 He helps both the mind and the heart. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8.26 We cannot resist temptation without Him. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. Acts 1.8
He who has the tide of corrupt nature and the wind of temptation must necessarily be carried down the stream of sin if the contrary wind of the Spirit does not blow. We cannot be fruitful without the Spirit. Why is the Spirit compared to dew and rain if not to show us how unable we are to bring forth a crop of grace unless the dew of God falls upon us? Without the Spirit, no ordinance is effective for us. Ordinances are the conduit pipes of grace, but the Spirit is the spring. Some are content that they have a Levite for their priest, Judges 17.13, but never seek for anything further. It is as if a merchant would be content that his ship has good equipment and is well manned, though it never has a gust of wind. The ship of ordinances will not carry us to heaven, even if an angel is the pilot, unless the wind of God's Spirit blows. The Spirit is the soul of the Word, without which it is only a dead letter to us. Ministers may prescribe a remedy, but God's Spirit must make it work. Our hearts are like David's body when it grew old. They covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. 1 Kings 1, 1. So although the ministers of God provide us with prayers and counsel as with hot clothes, yet we remain cold and chilly until God's Spirit comes. Then we say, like the disciples, Did not our heart burn within us? Luke 24, 32. Oh, what need therefore we have of the Spirit! You who have the blessed Spirit manifested by His power and life-giving work, acknowledge God's distinguishing love. The Spirit is an earmark of election. 1 John 3.24 Christ gave the bag to Judas, but did not give him his Spirit. The Spirit is a token of love. Where God gives His Spirit as a pledge, He gives Himself as a portion. The Spirit is a representative blessing. He is representative of all good things. Matthew 7, 11. Without the Spirit, you would be like mere carcasses. Without the Spirit, Christ would not profit you. The blood of God is not enough without the breath of God. Oh, then be thankful for the Spirit. This magnet will never stop drawing you until it has drawn you up to heaven. If you have the Spirit, do not grieve Him. Ephesians 4.30 Will we grieve our Comforter? Question. How do we grieve the Spirit? Answer 1. We grieve the Spirit when we unkindly repel His stirrings. The Spirit sometimes whispers in our ears and calls to us as God did to Jacob. Arise, go up to Bethel. Genesis 35.1 In the same way, the Spirit says, Arise, go to prayer, go alone and meet with your God. When we stifle these stirrings and consider temptations to things that are empty or vain, this is grieving the Spirit. 
if we resist or ignore the stirrings of the Spirit, we will lose the comforts of the Spirit. Answer 2. We grieve the Spirit when we deny the work of the Spirit in our hearts. If someone gives another person a memento and he would deny it and say he never received it, this would be to abuse the love of his friend. In the same way, Christian, when God has given you his Spirit, witnessed by those meltings of the heart and passionate desires for heaven, yet you deny that you ever had any renewing work of the Spirit in you, this is lowly ingratitude and grieves the good Spirit. Renounce the sinful works of the flesh, but do not deny the gracious work of the Spirit. Section 11. A Godly Person is a Humble Person A godly person is like the sun at noon. When it is at the highest, it shows the least. Augustine called humility the mother of the grace. However, before I show you who the humble person is, I will explain three distinctions. 1. I distinguish between being humbled and being humble. A person may be humbled, yet not be humble. A sinner may be humbled by affliction. His condition is low, but his disposition is not. A godly person is not only humbled, but he is humble. His heart is as low as his condition. 2. I distinguish between outward and inward humility. There is a great deal of difference between humble behavior and a humble spirit. A person may behave humbly toward others, yet be proud. Who was humbler than Absalom in his outward behavior? When any man came near to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand, and took him, and kissed him. 2 Samuel 15.5 Although he acted humbly, he aspired to the crown. As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. 2 Samuel 15.10 Here was pride dressed in humility's garments. A person may also behave humbly toward God, yet be proud. Ahab rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted, and lay in sackcloth and went softly. 1 Kings 21.27 But his heart was not humble. A man may bow his head like a bulrush, yet lift up the banner of pride in his heart. 1. I distinguish between humility and actions. Many people make a show of humility in order to achieve their own ends. The Roman Catholics seem to be the most humble, self-denying saints, but it is cunningness rather than humility, for by this means they get the revenues of the earth into their possession. They may do all this, yet still have no godliness. Question. How may a Christian know that he is humble? and therefore godly. Answer 1. A humble soul is emptied of all proud thoughts of himself. Bernard calls humility a self-annihilation. He shall save the humble person. 
Job 22.29. In Hebrew, it is, He who is of low eyes. A humble person has lower thoughts of himself than others can have of him. Although David was a king, he still looked upon himself as a worm. I am a worm and no man. Psalm 22.6 John Bradford, a martyr, still referred to himself as a sinner. If I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. Job 10.13 A humble person is like the violet, which is a sweet flower, yet hangs down its head. Answer 2. A humble soul thinks better of others than of himself. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Philippians 2, 3. A humble person values others at a higher rate than himself, and the reason is because he can see his own heart better than he can see another's. He sees his own corruption and thinks that it is certainly not the same with others, that their graces are not as weak as his, and that their corruptions are not as strong. He thinks, certainly they have better hearts than mine. A humble Christian studies his own weaknesses and another's virtues, and that causes him to put a higher value upon others than upon himself. Surely I am more brutish than any man. Proverbs 30:2. Although Paul was the chief of the apostles, he still called himself less than the least of all saints. Ephesians 3, 8. Answer 3. A humble soul has a low esteem of his duties. Pride tends to breed in our holy things as the worm breeds in the sweetest fruit and as froth comes from the richest wine. A humble person laments not only his sins, but also his duties. When he has prayed and wept, he says, Oh, how little I have done! God might rebuke me for all this. Like good Nehemiah, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me. Nehemiah 13.22 Remember, Lord, how I have poured out my soul, but spare me and pardon me. He sees that even his best duties do not weigh enough, so he desires that Christ's merits may be put into the scales. The humble saint is ashamed when he looks at all he has done. He sees flaws and shortcomings in it all. This humbles him to think that even his best duties are flawed. He drops poison upon his sacrifice. Oh, he says, I dare not say that I have prayed or wept. That which I write down as duties God might write down as sins. Answer 4. A humble person is always bringing bills of indictment against himself. He does not complain of his condition, but of his heart. This evil heart of unbelief? Lord, said John Hooper, I am hell, but you are heaven. A hypocrite is forever telling people how good he is. A humble soul is forever saying how bad he is. Paul, that towering saint, 
was caught up into the third heaven. But see how this bird of paradise mourns his corruptions. O wretched man that I am! Romans 7.24 Holy John Bradford signed with his name, The Hard-Hearted Sinner. The more knowledge a humble Christian has, the more he complains of ignorance. The more faith he has, the more he laments his unbelief. Answer 5. A humble person will support God even during times of affliction. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us. Nehemiah 9.33 If people oppress and revile, the humble soul acknowledges God's righteousness in the midst of severity. Lo, I have sinned. 2 Samuel 24.17 Lord, my pride, my barrenness, and my contentment with hearing many sermons have been the reason for all these judgments. When clouds are round about God, yet righteousness and judgment are the habitation of His throne. Psalm 97, 2. Answer 6. A humble soul magnifies Christ. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Philippians 1.20 He gives the glory of all his actions to Christ and free grace. King Canutus took the crown off his own head and set it upon a crucifix. In the same way, a humble saint takes the crown of honor from his own head and sets it upon Christ's head because of the love that he has for Christ. Love can part with anything for the one he loves. Isaac loved Rebekah and gave away his jewels to her. Genesis 24, 53 The humble saint loves Christ wholeheartedly and therefore can part with anything for him. He gives away to Christ the honor and praise of all he does. Let Christ wear those jewels. Answer 7. A humble soul is willing to be rebuked for sin. A wicked person is too proud to stoop to a reproof. The prophet Micaiah used to tell King Ahab of his sin. And the king said, I hate him. 1 Kings 22.8 Reproof to a proud person is like pouring water on lime, which grows even hotter. A gracious soul loves the one who reproves. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Proverbs 9, 8 The humble-spirited Christian can bear the reproach of an enemy and the reproof of a friend. Answer 8 A humble person is willing to have his name and role eclipsed so that God's glory may be increased. He is content to be outshined by others in gifts and esteem, so that the crown of Christ may shine brighter. The humble person's motto is, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. John 3.30 It is his desire that Christ should be exalted, and if this happens, no matter who is the instrument, he rejoices. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy. 
Philippians 1.15. They preached to take away some of Paul's hearers. His response was, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. Philippians 1.18. A humble Christian is content to be laid aside if God has any other tools to work with that may bring him more glory. Answer 9. A humble saint likes that condition that God determines is best for him. A proud person complains that he does not have more, but a humble person is amazed that he has so much. I am not worthy of the least of all your mercies. Genesis 32.10 When the heart lies low, it can stoop to a low condition. A Christian looking at his sins wonders that it is not worse with him. He does not say that his mercies are small, but that his sins are great. He knows that the worst piece God carves him is better than he deserves. Therefore, he takes it thankfully upon his knees. Answer 10. A humble Christian will stoop to the lowest person and the lowest duties. He will visit the poorest member of Christ. Lazarus's sores are more precious to him than the rich man's purple. Luke 16, 19-31 He does not say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Isaiah 65, 5 But he condescends to people of low estate. Romans 12, 16 Application 1 If humility is the inseparable character of a godly person, let us test our hearts by considering if we are humble. Where does the godliness appear in those who are swollen with pride and ready to burst? Even though people are proud, they will not confess it. This child of pride is born, but none are willing to admit it. Therefore, let me ask a few questions and let conscience answer. 1. Are not those proud who are given to boasting? Your glorying is not good. 1 Corinthians 5.6 1. The hearts of those who glory in their riches swell with their possessions and wealth. Bernard calls pride the rich man's cousin. Thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Ezekiel 28.5. 2. They are proud who glory in their apparel. Many dress themselves in such fashions as to make the devil fall in love with them. Faces painted, gaudy clothing, exposed breasts. What are these but the flags and banners that pride displays? 3. They are proud who glory in their beauty. The body is simply dust and blood kneaded together. King Lemuel said, Beauty is vain. Proverbs 31.30 Yet some are so vain as to be proud of vanity. 4. They are proud who glory in their gifts. This clothing and adornment do not set them apart in God's eyes. An angel is a knowledgeable creature. But if you take away humility from an angel, he is a devil. 2. Are not those proud who have a high opinion of their own qualities? 
Those who look at themselves in the magnifying glass of self-love appear better in their own eyes than they are. Simon Magus wanted others to think that he was some great one. Acts 8-9 Alexander felt the need to be the son of Jupiter and of the race of the gods. Sapor, king of Persia, called himself the brother of the sun and moon. I have read of a pope who stepped on the neck of Frederick the Emperor and as a cloak for his pride cited that text, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Psalm 91.13 There is no idol like self. The proud person bows down to this idol. 3. Are not those proud who despise others? The Pharisees trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Luke 18.9 The Chinese people say that they have two eyes. The Europeans have one eye, and all the rest of the world is blind. A proud person looks upon others with the same type of eye of scorn as Goliath looked upon David. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. 1 Samuel 17.42 Those who stand upon the pinnacle of pride look upon other people as no bigger than crows. 4. Are not those proud who trumpet their own praise? Before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody. Acts 5.36 a proud person announces his own good deeds and proclaims his own fame. And therein lies his sin. He paints his own virtue. 5. Are not those proud who take for themselves the glory due to God? Is not this great Babylon that I have built? Daniel 4.30 The proud person speaks the same way. Are not these the prayers I have made? Are not these the works of charity I have done? When Herod had made an oration, and the people shouted, It is the voice of a god, and not of a man, Acts 12.22, he was quite content to have that honor paid to him. Pride is the greatest sacrilege, for it robs God of his glory. 6. Are not those proud who are never pleased with their situation? They speak harshly of God, testing His care and wisdom, as if He had not dealt well with them. God Himself cannot please a proud person, but like Momus, He is always finding fault and flying in the face of heaven. Oh, let us search to see if there is any of this leaven of pride in us. Man is naturally proud. This sin runs in the blood. Our first parents fell by their pride. They aspired to deity. The seeds of this are in the best people, but the godly do not allow it to grow in themselves. They labor to kill this weed by denying self and the flesh. But certainly, where this sin is dominant and prevails, it cannot dwell with grace. You may as well call him who lacks discretion a prudent person as to call him who lacks humility a godly person.
Application two: Labor for this characteristic. Be humble. It is an apostolic exhortation to be clothed with humility. First Peter five five. Put it on as an embroidered robe. It is better to lack anything rather than humility. It is better to lack talent rather than humility. It is even better to lack the comforts of the spirit rather than to lack humility. What doth the Lord require of thee but to walk humbly with thy God? Micah six eight. The more value any one has, the more humble he is. Feathers fly up, but gold descends. The golden saint descends in humility. Some of the ancients have compared humility to the Celadonian stone, which is little in size but of rare worth. God loves a humble soul. It is not our high birth, but our low hearts that God delights in. He desires us to have a humble spirit. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth. At my word, Isaiah sixty-six two, a humble heart is God's palace. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. Many wealthy people, in addition to their main houses, also have lesser houses that they occasionally use as a place of retreat. In addition to God's house in heaven, He has the humble soul for His retiring house, where He takes up His rest and delights Himself. Italy may boast that it is for pleasure the garden of the world, but a humble heart glories that it is the guest room of the great King. The times we live in are humbling. The Lord seems to say to us now, as He did to Israel. Put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. Exodus thirty-three five. He says, "My displeasure is breaking forth. I have eclipsed the light of the sanctuary. I have stained the waters with blood. I have shot the arrow of pestilence. Therefore, lay down your pride and put off your ornaments. Woe to those who lift themselves up." When God is casting them down, when should people be humble, if not under the rod? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. First Peter five six. When God afflicts His people and cuts them short in their privileges, it is time then to sew sackcloth on their skin, and defile their honor in the dust. Job sixteen fifteen. What a horrid sin pride is! John Chrysostom called it the mother of hell. Pride is a complicated evil, as someone said. Justice comprehends all virtue in itself, and pride comprehends all vice. It is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up as wine into the brain and intoxicates it. It is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. It is revenge. Haman plotted Mordecai's death because Haman would not bow to him. How abhorrent this sin 
is to God. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16.3 The Harm of Pride It ruins souls. Surely Moab shall be as Sodom. This shall they have for their pride. Zephaniah 2, 9-10 Pliny said that the doves take pride in their feathers and in flying high, and they eventually fly so high that they are a prey to the hawk. People fly so high in pride that eventually they are a prey to the devil, the prince of the air. Humility raises one's esteem in the eyes of others. All people give respect to the humble. Before honor is humility. Proverbs 15, 33. Question. What means may we use to be humble? Answer 1. Let us set before us the golden pattern of Christ. He earned a doctorate in humility but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 7 Oh, what a humbling experience it was for the Son of God to take our flesh, even that Christ would take upon himself our nature, when it was in disgrace, being stained with sin. This was the wonder of humility. Look at a humble Savior and let the plumes of pride fall. Answer 2. Study God's greatness and purity. A sight of glory humbles. Elijah wrapped his face in a mantle when God's glory passed before him. 1 Kings 19.13 The stars vanish when the sun appears. Answer 3. Let us study ourselves. First, let us study our dark side. By looking at our faces in the mirror of the Word, we see our blemishes. What a world of sin swarms in us. We may say with Bernard, Lord, I am nothing but either sinfulness or barrenness. Secondly, let us study our light side. Is there any good in us? 1 how disproportionate it is to the means of grace we have enjoyed. There is still something lacking in our faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 Christian, do not be proud of what you have, but be humble for what you lack. 2. The grace we have is not of our own growth. We are indebted to Christ and free grace for it. As one of the sons of the prophets said to Elisha of that axe that fell in the water, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. 2 Kings 6.5 So I may say of all the good and excellence in us, it is borrowed. Would it not be foolish to be proud of a ring that is borrowed? For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 The moon has no reason to be proud of its light when it borrows it from the sun. 3. How far short we come of others. Some other Christians are giants in grace. They are in Christ not only before us, 
but above us. We are only as the foot in Christ's body, but they are as the eye. Four, our beauty is spotted. The church is said to be as fair as the moon. Song of Solomon 6.10, which, when it shines brightest, has a dark spot in it. Faith is mixed with unbelief. A Christian has in his very grace that which may humble him. 5. If we want to be humble, let us contemplate our mortality. Will dust exalt itself? The thoughts of the grave should bury our pride. Some people used to believe that when there was a swelling in the body, the hand of a dead person stroking that part would cure the swelling. The serious meditation of death is enough to cure the swelling of pride.